You are listening to Folking, the podcast series that brings you folkloric traditions from around the world, where we feature the words and music of independent global musicians and discuss modern issues through the lens of folklore and history. My name is Genevieve. Welcome. podcast series is brought to you courtesy of my patrons on Patreon, without whom its existence would not be possible. If you would like to explore extended materials, such as uncut video versions of these interviews, or if you simply want to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash songs for dark times and consider becoming a patron. Also, if you have an interest in exploring any of my other work, head to my website at songsfordarktimes.com. Today we head to New England to interview punk rock singer, sacred harp devotee, and ethnomusicologist Tim Erickson. Tim is the only man to have shared the stage with both Kurt Cobain and Doc Watson, and who BBC Radio calls the best ballad singer of his generation. To find out more about Tim and his work, or to purchase music from today's episode, head to Tim's website at Tim ericsonmusic.com, also listed in the show notes. Once again, you are listening to Folking. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the show. Side, surrounded by the blue-hued, ice-covered rock of the Catskill Mountains in New York. My friend Billy Scribbles, who is a fantastic banjo player and American legend hunter, has been showing me places where Rip Van Winkle is purported to have lived once upon a time, trying to escape the nagging of his wife and succumbing at last to a 20-year-long nap. After teaching me a rather questionable drinking song about the Dutch, and showing me places in the rock where folks have been carving in their initials for well over a century or two, we fall into a comfortable silence and just stand and stare out over the quiet New York countryside. Do you know Tim Erickson? asks Billy out of nowhere. I don't think so. But now that you say it, the name sounds kind of familiar. Why? Well, he's a pretty big folk guy. He's involved in all this sacred harp stuff, travels all over the place. I think you should interview him for your podcast. Heck, I want to meet him. I've gone to a couple singings, but I just keep missing him. This is not really at all what Billy sounds like, by the way, but I'm doing my best, so bear with me. I don't know if he's there now, but I heard he lives up in Amherst. You still thinking of going to Boston tomorrow? 
I think so. Well, you could take a bus up north. It's pretty easy. I think you should reach out to him. He seems like an approachable kind of guy. Now, I have something kind of embarrassing to admit. I have the happy misfortune of not just being bad, but absolutely abysmal when it comes to remembering names. I frequently misintroduce good friends who I've known for years in public situations. I have even on occasion forgotten my own name. I wish I was joking. I'm not. In any case, while this has obviously proven troublesome in every other area of my life, strangely, it has, for the most part, worked in my favor in the world of folk music because if I actually remembered the names of half the artists whose work I admire that I somehow run into on my travels, I would never have the courage to talk to them. And in that case, there would be no podcast, so you're welcome. Anyway, it was on the train the next day. I was listening to a couple of Tim Erickson's songs, and I couldn't shake the feeling that I'd heard his voice before. So I go online, find his picture, and suddenly it clicks. Three years prior, I had decided on a whim to challenge myself by trying to arrange one new folk song every week for a regular gig I was hosting at a local pub. One particular morning, after trying literally for hours to find a new song and instead just pressing skip over and over and over, eventually I got distracted and ran off to do something else, letting the algorithm run its course. Now, I don't remember what it was I got distracted doing. It doesn't really matter. What I do remember is that whatever I was doing, this quiet voice begins to fill the room and I just stop. Down by deep water where sweet linden stand I saw pretty Polly wringing her hands The song that she sung made the whole grove to ring My Billy has left me to fight for a king And I wish the wars were all over. I don't know that I can properly articulate what it was about the song that just grabbed me. There were no fancy vocal adornments. The arrangement is quite simple. I mean, obviously it's beautiful, but it wasn't that. There was just something. I don't know, this kind of listless melancholy in the way that he sang that was just mesmerizing. So, of course, I run to the computer, buy the song, and proceed to listen to it on repeat every day for about two months. Sitting on the train, heading to Massachusetts, and realizing suddenly that this was the same artist and I might have a chance of meeting and interviewing him I was ecstatic. So, before I can lose my courage or get distracted doing anything else, I head to Tim Erickson's Facebook page and I send him a message. Hi, Tim. My name is Genevieve. I am a folk singer and uh, I travel around the world collecting folk songs and performing, but I also have a small podcast and I happen to be on the train headed to Boston right now. 
If you're going to be around Massachusetts at any point over the next couple weeks, I would love to buy you a coffee and do a short interview. If you have time, that is. Either way, um, thank you so much and have a happy winter. I didn't think he was going to write back, really. But, to my astonishment, he replied 30 seconds later. Hey, Genevieve. Lovely to meet you. Sure. Let's find a time to talk. And I wish the wars were all over. Now, I am certain that for most of you listening, Tim Erickson needs no introduction. However, on the off chance that there are at least a handful of listeners who find themselves completely in the dark as to who he is, as I unfortunately discovered I was after that exchange. Let me regale you, for a moment, with a handful of Tim Erickson's many and varied accomplishments in the world of music. First off, do you recall the movie Cold Mountain, starring Nicole Kidman and Jude Law and a host of other big-name actors? Well, the most unmistakable voice on that soundtrack is... Tim Erickson. For those of you who love the UK folk scene as much as I do, then you are undoubtedly familiar with Eliza Carthy, yes? Well, I discovered she and Tim Erickson are not only friends, but they made one hell of an album together called Bottle, which if you have not heard it already, please do yourself a favor. Put this on pause and just go listen to the whole thing right now. It's okay, I'll wait. Just kidding. As it turns out, he has shared the stage with everyone from Kurt Cobain to Doc Watson to Omar Sosa to the late Esma Redshapova, who happens to be one of my personal idols, even if I can't pronounce her name correctly. I'm sorry, Esma. Tim Erickson has performed everywhere from the Academy Awards to Carnegie Hall to the Blue Note Jazz Club to a set of Prairie Home Companion. I mean, it doesn't get better than that. Except it does, because, as I also discovered, Tim Erickson is not just into Americana or ballad singing or even the Sacred Harp. He performs everything from hardcore punk to gospel to Bosnian folk pop. And his formal training, get this, is in classical South Indian music. In light of all this suddenly uncovered musical history you might understand why I began to grow just a little bit uneasy about our meeting, and completely embarrassed that I had just reached out to him without any common acquaintance or formal introduction. However, my growing fears that I had somehow overstepped this invisible line in the world of folk music hierarchy turned out to be completely unfounded. In spite of all his incredible accomplishments, Tim Erickson turned out to be welcoming, down-to-earth, and completely generous with his time, his music, and his hospitality. When I stepped off the bus from Boston to Amherst, I am met by a tall, thin man clad completely in black, including a well-made black cowboy hat and iconic black boots. We grab some food and head back to his house for the interview. Now, I'm not sure exactly what I expected, but I find myself in a quiet, New England neighborhood, 
with the smell of conifers and wood smoke thick in the air, and the stillness of the place amplified by the sudden winter storm which has set in all over the East Coast that January. The house itself feels old, but well-kept and well-loved. In the sitting room, I am met by an array of instruments and old books and the remnants of what I would wager is a solo recording session. For the first few minutes, we eat, mostly in silence. So I ask him, what is your favorite song to sing these days? He responds by singing it for me. As a friend of mine once said, some musicians just seem to breathe and bleed music. And as I listen, sitting there, surprised by the way that his voice just seems to fill the room without even trying, I think, yes, Tim Erickson is undoubtedly one of these. He asks me then if I will sing him a song in return, so I choose a folk song that I've recently acquired in Croatia and which has become my new favorite. I don't speak Croatian, he says when I am through, but I understood most of what you sang. We have a lot of extended family in the Balkans. Actually, I just gave my first interview completely in Serbian about two months ago. When I finally pull out my recorder for the actual interview, we have been talking for nearly five hours, and I am afraid that maybe there is nothing left to say. However, if there is one thing that I am learning about Tim Erickson, it is that he and his music are full of infinite surprises. I took the opportunity two years later to speak with him again in the midst of the pandemic. This episode is a patchwork piece of those two conversations. I'm Tim Erickson. I'm a singer and musician and ethnomusicologist. I think the most people know, who know me for singing know me for singing old American ballads and things like that, uh, traditional songs of the 18th and 19th century. I sing Sacred Harp when nobody's paying me with most of my friends. And I sing songs from my kind of extended family throughout the ex-Yugoslavia that have just been a part of part of my life for a while. One old moon as sister cast a beam this newest moon as rock casts on the shadow. I love it. It's a gift I can give myself anytime and to anyone, anywhere. Not that everybody's gonna, gonna like it, but they mostly do and they mostly appreciate being sung to. You know, it's one of the first things that ever happens to us. <laughs> Probably ought to happen more often. What speed westward can stop her being swallowed by the hills? Which of all the fairest sounds between this rock and ours cast anything but memory?
I, I play a strangely wide array of things, and I, this uh, past year has been a, a time to remember some of the things that I haven't had time for because I was busy. I studied Saraswati Vina. I've been playing that again for the first time in, in a long time. My study of that music has influenced my hearing of a lot of other things. Um, I have a banjo, a guitar, and a bajo sexto, and I have been recording them. I've been recording not really lullabies, but uh, the kinds of music I play for my six-year-old Eliash. Um, he's going to sleep, and I'm making a whole album with uh, some friends of mine in London. Of it's probably going to be called Songs for Lucid Dreaming. Yeah, it's interesting to think because I'm making this intentionally very quiet, late night kind of record. And I'm thinking, wow, that's really, it's just funny because I, I played punk rock for so long. I suppose the short answer with what I what I play is just what's on my bed is a guitar, a bajo sexto, and a, a banjo. Records ever made is Soul of the January Hills, and the, the point of that record was to not do any choosing uh, or arranging. And I'd been wanting to make it for a number of years, but I wasn't ready. And then one day I woke up in this Polish monastery and I had a recorder. I had a Marantz recorder that I was carrying around with me just on the off chance that I'd be able to, that I'd feel like, yeah, I can do this. I can, I can sing. 10, 12, 14 songs in one sitting without edits or overdubs and, and it'll be, and I'll want to listen to it. You know, it'll be something that I would, I would be happy to listen to. So I just, I woke up this one morning and I, I felt like that was the day and found a place in the monastery that was not being occupied. It was, um, it was very cool. We, the one thing we needed was an extension cord and a place to sit and I got the local priest to come and bring the, he agreed to bring the key to this parapet. I guess, I don't know if that's the word. Um, it's, it's in Yaroslav in southeastern Poland, near the Ukraine border. And it was a very important stop on the Silk Road. So the monastery was fortified, and a big wall around it. I mean, as they often did. But they were center of commerce as well as um, um, religion. So we got the key to this parapet and the thing's like peeling away from the wall. <laughs> like, creak, creak. And uh, we opened it up and a bird flew out. And we looked in and it was this lovely little room and there was a couch and um, an extension cord hanging on the wall. And it was, so I just plugged it in and I sang 14 songs. And the choice there was just, what do I feel like singing now? What do I feel like singing now? With no reference to any external pitch, just like, okay, that song left me here. Queen Jane sat at her window one day, sewing a silken seam. She looked out to the merry green wood. She saw the green nut tree. She saw the green nut tree. 
She dropped her thimble at her heel And her needle at her toe And away she's run to the merry green wood To gather nuts and sow To gather nuts and sow She scarce had reached the merry green wood Scarce had pulled nuts two or three When a proud forester come riding by Saying fair maid let those be Saying fair maid let those be That was the rite of passage. It, it's 14, I think, solo unaccompanied songs sung in, in a single take with no edits. And I had been wanting for a long time to, to do an album of straight unaccompanied singing just as it came to me. What did I just sing? Okay, what feels right next? Because it's, it's a holy, it's a very, very different thing. There are a number of ways in which it's different from making a record in the studio. And it's also different from figuring out a repertoire and deciding what I'm gonna sing because the way I sing, if I'm sitting out on the beach or I'm singing to my six-year-old, it's, it's, not, it's nothing fancy. It's just you sing something and then what do you feel like singing next? And the key comes from the context. It comes from the vibe at the moment. Um, and I wanted to get to the point where I could do, you know, a whole album of that moment to moment to moment to moment and, and like it. <laughs> To, to get to where my singing was, where I, I could listen to it and feel comfortable and enjoy it and sing along with myself. And it took me a long time. And then I recorded that in 2008, um, gosh, which was a while ago now. I know if I did it now, I, would, it would, I think it would be better or it would be more to my liking, but I can still listen to it. Mm -hmm. And I feel that I'd reached a, 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 I still feel that I had reached the point that I, was aiming for to make that that record not just as an exercise in i mean as a discipline but not just as as a a discipline but as an example of something that i thought would be beautiful and encouraging um and interesting for listeners that is different than it would have been if I had decided what songs I was going to record or if I had done it in a studio or picked keys and, and that kind of thing. Just this stream of consciousness for 45 minutes an hour, however, however long it is. I still like it. And I, I actually have thought of doing a, a 2020 version. Hold up your hand, old Joshua, she said. Wait a while and see. For I thought I saw my own dear father come Sailing over the sea Oh, have you brought some money for me Or gold to pay my fee For I have stolen a silvery cup And hang it, I'm going to be no, I have not brought any money for you, nor gold to pay your fee. I have just come to see you 
from yonder's gallows tree. I loved that. It's one of the easiest records of mine for me to listen to. But there are others where it's like uh, this album, Josh Billings Foyets, which which took a couple of years actually to figure out what I was doing. And the idea there is that it's music from an imaginary New England village, so that required a good deal more, you know, thought. And what kind of songs do I want? I want to have something that represents sacred music. I want to have something that represents the African presence in New England, the Native American presence, uh, if possible. I want to have something about some things about the sea because the story of these friends of ours involves. Uh, this guy, Black Josh, Josh Billings, born in 1799 uh, in Pumpkintown, and who, like a lot of kids, um, boys anyway, predominantly, overwhelmingly, his first big experience out of the village was signing on a merchant ship and being gone for two years, sailing to the Coromandel coast of southeast India via Zanzibar on, these, on, on this ship that had uh, sailors from all over the world, you know, Maori, Basque, um, African, um, black Yankees, white Yankees, Irish, anywhere they went, Hawaiians, you know, like in Moby Dick. Imagining the, the range of, of sound and experience for a 12-year-old signing on board being gone from home for two years. And um, this guy, Black Josh, who had very big ears, <laughs> He was alleged to have said that he just as soon go to a funeral as a frolic as long as they were singing. Oh, my dearest dear, the time has come when we must part. No one knows the inner grief of my poor aching heart. All what I said, sail or sank for I love so dear I wish that I could go with you or you could tarry here so that was that was an album trying to uh, where the choices had to reflect that I wanted them to reflect that character and that so my understanding my sense of a New England village such as ones that I've lived in which includes original songs one about connection between a serial killer that lived in my attic and the overwhelming mouse population in this house. And uh, I was able to bring together all kinds of things that I love in there, including loud, distorted guitar and awesome trumpet playing. So it felt like all of the choices of the songs on there, for the most part, it was kind of like, ooh, I think this this will be fun. So when you're on some distant shore, think on your absent friend. When the wind blows high and clear, a line or two pray send. When the wind blows high and clear, pray send a thought to me that I
I was interested in New England as an imaginary place, as an, an imagined place, and interested in nations as invented imaginary places that have real boundaries and, and real uh, guns that police them. But they're, you know, basically imaginary places. Um, and, and it occurred to me that any kind of sort of folkloric music or music that is meant to represent place or people is all from an imaginary village. But the, the notion of folk music is so tied to the idea of the nation state in this 19th century uh, ideas of, yeah, ideas of, not just ideas of, but practices of nationalism and this marshalling of, of music uh, as, a, as a resource to kind of define and police borders. Mm -hmm. And I have enjoyed being able to complicate borders and not, not, not in a kind of just intellectual way, but to, to play with liminal spaces, places that, you know, that seem like they, they should be known, but they're, but they're stranger because the places I've lived are always stranger than they were made out to be. Maybe that's just a very child perspective that there's something strange going on here that nobody's talking about. And it's, it's a vehicle, this idea of pumpkin town, it's a, a terrible name for a band because of the place of the pumpkin in United States, America, kind of national thinking and New England in particular, it, there's an association between the pumpkin and kind of a rustic New England uh, identity that no other vegetable except possibly corn. But yeah. then that, how do you, I mean, there's already a band called corn. Um, <laughs> um, but I mean, not to make just it spell it the normal way. <laughs> That's true. What an idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, but the, the na name aside, um, Pumpkin Town is an imaginary place that has allowed me to explore some real stories. It, it exists as a kind of theater piece with magic lantern projections. So uh, three or four of us play music from this imaginary New England village, traditional songs and original, uh, sometimes with these beautiful magic lantern um, projections and when I, whenever I talk about Pumpkin Town, when I sort of go there mentally, anything weird that comes up is just my life. And the things that happen in Pumpkin Town are not magical or even very interesting. Like the strangest thing is that our, our imaginary friend Silas still works at Lowe's after all these years. Or that like Aunt Tempe swears that she hears wolves. You know, there's no story about it. Ideas about this this village play into our sense of ourselves and the nation and, and things like race and um, you know, all of the, all of the things that, that we are so much about as, as a, a, a our national obsessions, I guess, can be located in, in this village, which turns out to be a, a, a more interesting place and a, and a more, um, a more complex, and diverse place than say Lake Wobegon. Um, in any case, I love this imaginary village because it is an opportunity to play like that, push the edges, to invite people into it and to explore some of these things, including the, the, some scary things about 
that if it's contained within this village, it feels, I think, um, safer. It's not a genre. I, that's another thing that has been useful about Pumpkin Town is a lot of times people ask me what kind of music I play, and I don't, I'm not very good at saying what it is. But there's, there is something about it being a show that puts it off a little bit from being me because it's me being me in this other context that allows me in a way to talk about things that I can if I'm just being me. I don't know if that makes any sense. I'm really going and talking in further out than I meant to go, but th this is what I meant to say is that uh, I can talk about things that are very personal in a way that gives a little bit of a buffer so that it's just not too much, even if people know the the truth of, of my life, that it's in the context of this this little world. dad uh, started out as a joke. Um, I had just really thought it was a ridiculous idea. We, we all shared an interest in like folk song or whatever. So we thought that it would just be really stupid and hilarious to, to play it loud. Um, and this, you have to remember this is before, before MTV's unplugged and everything. So the idea of, it's hard to explain what what the, the the perception of folk music was in the in the mid '80s uh, or whatever you want to call it traditional song. Anyway, it was funnier at the time than it than it is now. It just it really struck us as hilarious. So we uh, it started as an experiment in extremes where we even our very first show it started with unaccompanied uh, solo song and ended in chaos. You know. Um, loud feedback and stuff um so we thought it was hilarious and for some reason people liked it and it was we liked it too it was fun to to do that kind of range to do uh, i think you know even now that would be unusual to put those things together but mm -hmm. like i said this was before even mtv unplugged so um a lot of people were taken with the idea of like this acoustic music you know we often would play unplugged we just go down in the middle of the audience and people would sort of sit around and we'd strum you know sing some old ballads and then get up and play some noisy music and <clears throat> it had a very goth appeal i was not a goth but uh, we had a very goth appeal you know you combine the sort of anger um and noise of punk rock with a little tender um you know murder ballad or something and eventually hit on a formula that 
lasted us for a little while, but we were going to name ourselves after a local uh, convenience store. Um, I can't remember if it was Cumberland Farms or something. It was just something that was like really fake country sounding, you know, fake rural, like so many cul-de-sacs and, uh, and businesses and stuff. But um, he, you know, this was like, this is very collegiate. It was just, you know, when we were in college and I think it was uh, his English, an English professor of his, they were studying King Lear. So we referred to King Lear as Cordelia's dad. We thought it had a ring to it. <laughs> since, we were, since it was a joke band, you know, we thought that um, having a jokey kind of, you know, old English reference or something would, would be funny. And yep, that was how that came about. All the night that I was married and in my marriage bed There came a bold sea captain and he stood at my bedhead Crying arise, arise young married man and come along with me To the low, low lands of Holland to fight the enemy first experience would have been listening to an LP in my library when I was, uh, you know, 15 or something, playing punk rock, but listening to uh, experimental music, John Cage and Harry Parch, and listening to whatever they had. 
whatever I could find that, that I thought was interesting. And I, I, that would have been the first time I probably ever heard a recording um, that, you know, that I was ever conscious of the sacred harp as a, as a term. And I, I thought it was interesting, but I wasn't, it didn't make me run out and want to, you know, join the cult. It was, <laughs> I wrote about it some in a, I had a history paper when I was 16. <laughs> I wrote a 25 page, it was the longest thing I'd ever written. It was a 25 page term paper on American music. And I wrote about that some and um, a number of traditions. Uh, so it was kind of a slow burn. Dabbled here and there, listened to some recordings, that some books in the library that I looked at, uh, tried to figure out the notation. And, but the, the short answer would have been, oh, my friend Kelly got the Sacred Harp out of the library and we started singing from it. There was just sort of several years of backstory before that and mm -hmm. connections. And I was already interested in unaccompanied singing. I mean, from that being the first thing I ever heard through then when we were first starting to play punk, when that was just happening, I had this um, epiphany which I have every 10 years or so, uh, some sort of epiphany, but it was wondering um, what kind of music we would play when we were all living in caves after the apocalypse, which it was just assumed was gonna happen. This was, you know, my generation, you know, the movies, all of the movies were about the, and still, I guess people are still have this apocalyptic thinking. It's very American, very kind of Protestant thinking. Well, I don't know. It's feeling pretty appropriate right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I was well prepared for this pandemic because I was like, well, yeah, I've been already doing post-apocalyptic music my whole my whole life. So, um, but so <laughs> we were playing, you know, loud, noisy music in our parents' basements and things. I, I had this question because my when I wasn't doing that, I was sitting in the woods or um, on on the seashore. Or something. I spent a, a lot of time outside and very aware of, of seasons and tides and weather and history. Um, I grew up on salt water and this was sort of another epiphany many years later, but I realized how influential salt water was in an, a non-metaphorical way, in a really literal way uh, on my thinking and approach to life. And it's the expectation of going out and there being new things there, either with each tide, you know, basically twice a day, either things have washed up or if there's a high tide, they've washed out of the bank or there are things you go to the exact same spot that you were sitting in yesterday and there are three arrowheads, you know, that weren't there because of some, something about the tide. Um, <clears throat> and the current or whatever. So um, that kind of expectation going out the door and looking for, for things has stayed with me. And the, the awareness of the place where I was and finding things, pieces of, you know, uh, pottery that were, uh, you know, in the thousands of years old and then finding 17th century bottles and this weird layers of, you know, just who are these people? Layers of, of past in this place that, that was mine. I had this question about the people buried in the woods, which included um, uh, native people there called uh, Nisiquag people. 
and um, and others, you know, uh, people of European and African descent. And this question I had was, if you're not my ancestors, why are you buried in my woods? That like, I really felt that this is my this is my place. So who are these? <laughs> what is my connection to them if they're not literally my ancestors? But um, <clears throat> and I had a you know much more romantic sense of place at that time. It didn't. I wasn't really aware of the fact that the woods that I was living in were feral woods. I mean, I had some, some awareness of it because there'd be weird stone walls. This is something you find throughout New England, uh, stone walls in the middle of the woods. Like, what is that about? Well, of course it used to be fields and before it was fields, you know, which the Europeans were raising sheep on. It was uh, other kinds of land, either woods or, or um, various kinds of, of, uh, uh, habitats that aren't really around anymore and i've lost track of the question but (laughs) (laughs) with all of that in my experience of music sitting on the beach or in the woods and singing and making instruments out of reeds and and sticks and things i had this question what kind what do we do when there's no electricity what kind of music will will we play will we do and the obvious thing was unaccompanied singing and uh, community singing and stuff with things that you know that we could make. So that was uh, that was all in my mind when I when I first started to get really excited about uh, ballad singing. Say I wasn't interested in folk music at all. I was interested in apocalypse and I was interested in garbage. I was interested in in things that washed up or had been left behind or forgotten about. So I didn't tie it to to the the kind of history of, of folk music it was really tied to punk rock and um archaeology and garbage and still is i think for me uh, those are sort of points of orientation material culture and and the strangeness of of uh, the uh, lingering presence of of people either through their things or through I'd almost say through the questions that they left behind to put it in a kind of a romantic way, but uh, it doesn't, but it feels kind of real to me. I feel like the, the folks are around through the, through the garbage and the, and the, the questions they left lingering. We just had a singing this evening over Zoom and Jamulus. There's, um, it's community singing from the, the Sacred Harp is a, a book of over 500 songs in shape note notation, which is a notational system developed around 1800. And the music in it spans from very few uh, European tunes, almost entirely tunes of American um composition or at least arrangement uh, ranging from the 1770s through uh well 1991 is the most recent edition but i'd say the bulk of it is in styles that were 
um, that were most popular in the 18th through mid uh, 19th centuries. And as the yeah, book's been in print, it's been updated. People have written broadly in this kind of style. Uh, it's a tradition that has uh, many generations in some parts of the South. Uh, Alabama is, well, I, there, there are a number of really strong singing areas overall. Alabama probably has the largest number of people, but, but uh, parts of Texas and, and Georgia where the book was first published. And over the last 40 years or so, it has grown and people have shared it more broadly so that you can now find singings um, around the world dotted here and there. The harmonies are, are beautiful. They're not like kind of formal uh, um, music harmonies. Each of the four harmony parts is pretty melodic, uh, mostly almost entirely written by people who are not trained in sort of harmony, including myself. I somehow managed to get a PhD in ethnomusicology without really learning how to read music, but. Um, well done. <laughs> shape that music. Yeah, I sort of <laughs> took some effort. Um, interesting people, good food that goes along with it. We sing sing often and, and um, enthusiastically. And I've been teaching it for almost as long as I've been doing it. Started teaching it when I had almost no idea what I was doing or virtually no idea what I was doing. And um, in the, the recent months that we haven't been able to gather and sing in person, people have found different ways of, of filling that, that void either making composite videos or um, uh, this, you know, singing with this music software, Jamulus, that is pretty good at getting rid of the, the latency, the timing issues that one finds trying to do music live online. We sing for people all the time in Sacred Heart. <clears throat> we sing for people when they've died, sing for them and their families for a year. I mean, as a community. People always people will call us on for somebody that's gone, even if they've been gone a long time. Anytime they want to do that, but for a whole year, we we will sing for for those people and for the people who can't get to a singing because of illness or having to look after somebody or some other some other reason. You can actually hear them sometimes. It's really and there's nothing magic about it. But there's this funny thing about the voice that we, we catch each other's presence. I was teaching a singing school. I've told, I've told this story a lot of times, but it was a moment for me. I was teaching Sacred Harp out in Portland, Oregon, many years ago. And we sit in a hollow square, everybody facing in in the four harmony parts. So I had my back to the altos and I heard this voice that belonged to a friend of mine who had passed on uh, um, I believe it was a year and a half before that and it was absolutely her voice it was, it was her voice and I turned around I didn't recognize anybody and eventually figured out that it was somebody who learned to sing sitting next to somebody who sang with this friend a lot so this is like a lateral pass this isn't like the big 
you know, coming down from the ages, this is just kids. Like if you ever had a friend who sneeze you liked or like, like laugh or, or the way they said a word and, and you start doing it. And for a while it feels phony. Like you feel like, Oh, I'm imitating. And then after a while it becomes who you are. And then and I, I hiccup like my dad, you know, and it's not genetic and I'm not trying to, to call him to mind, but it's just, we get the voice is this place where we, we, we carry each other along in ways that we can only so much more subtly in our faces and in our bodies. We might do that as well, but in the voice, you don't have to be with somebody for too long before they, they get in there. And so when I, when I figured this out about this woman that I never met singing, having this voice of my friend, it's like, whoa, whose voice is coming out of my head? Like all these voices, probably people I don't know. The way I pronounce certain words. Uh, and we think of the voice as being this thing that's so unique, so uniquely ours, like the, you know, this whole self, I'm not opposed to self-determination by any means, or, or um, I just think there's a lot of times when we think we're doing something all, all on our own when, when we're, we're not, when we have all this help of people that we're not even aware of. Try pulling your own bootstraps up in, alone in the desert I know that's a misuse of that particular um, idiom. But, um, you know, oh, I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. Like, uh, yeah. Like, no. That's something that we, as singers, that we've been learning. We've been learning how to stand up for ourselves and stand up for each other. And when I say us singers, I mean, we're kind of a ragtag band of you know, people that started out as kind of punk rock musicians and this and that, an odd, an odd mixture. We, from the beginning of the Sacred Harp or what the singing that's happening now, it was, an, it was just an interesting mix. It was multi-generational. People who didn't have necessarily similar ideas about the universe or that similar life experiences. Certainly on the scale of things we did, we all lived in the valley, but it's been a growing period you know, learning how to be patient with ourselves and with each other. That's a, a tremendous thing that singing together can do. You know, you think about the difference between the person who annoys you the most, that's up in your face the most. You think about seeing them in a context where they're, all you can think about is how they're up in your face and then you could just walk away. And then you think about seeing that same person after 10 years alone on a desert island and they show up with a boat. Same person, <laughs> you know. So in, in the context of sacred harp singing, it might not be that dramatic, but there's something that we see in each other, I think. We learn increasingly to see in each other. I don't care how much I don't like you right now. <laughs> I can't sing this on my own. I need you. Love, oh, love, oh, careless love. Love, oh, love, oh, careless love. Love, oh, love, oh, careless love. You're the one I'm dreaming of. When I wore my apron low. 
When I wore my apron low When I wore my apron low You came hanging round my door Now my apron strings won't pin Now my apron strings won't pin now my apron strings won't pin You pass by but you won't come in Do you think the world would be better or, well, at least different somehow if people still sang together, like in communities? It will be. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. First of all, we'd be spending more time singing. <laughs> There's, there's a good dozen or two things that that could take the place of without negatively affecting anybody's life. Opioid use would go down. Anger would be reduced. Laughter would be increased. Appreciation of people around you that you might not like. That's an interesting one, you know, because it can be challenging if you say, like, come one, come all. Everybody, you know. Well... It either is or it isn't. <laughs> love, oh love, oh careless love, you're the one I'm dreaming of. I have one, one friend in particular, he wrote, he wrote one tune that we will all always remember and we'll always sing. And he wrote some other fantastic stuff, pages and pages. It's really cool, but this one tune, you know, he said he wants that on his gravestone. Would you mind singing it for me? How long thou faithful God shall I here in thy ways forgotten lie when shall the means of healing be the channels of thy grace to me Sinners on every side step in and wash away their pain and sin. But I, a helpless in sick soul, Still I expiring at the pole. You have been listening to Folking. I want to say a special thank you to Tim Erickson for his time, his generosity, and of course, his music. I would also like to say a thank you to the band Ankle, spelled E-N-K-E-L, for our theme song. If you enjoyed the music in today's episode please consider supporting the artist by purchasing it. 
head to Tim Erickson, spelled T-I-M-E-R-I-K-S-E-N, music.com. Likewise, if you enjoy this series, please consider sharing it with your friends or anyone else you think might be interested, or by posting about it on social media. It really does help and is the only way for the podcast to grow and expand. Last but not least, if you would like to explore any of my other projects, head to my website at songsfordarktimes.com. Thanks again for tuning in, and I wish you all the happiest of new years. The old joke, how do you get to Carnegie Hall, practice, practice, whatever. No, it did not in my case. Um, it's like, you know, <laughs> I... I I made a recording that I never, I didn't have a copy of in sometime in the nineties with a group that I toured with once in England. I never got a copy of the recording, never heard it. And um, there's a composer, Evan Chambers, who wrote this piece and he was looking for a voice. And he, a friend of his had a cassette tape unlabeled. I have the fact that I got to work on the movie cold mountain was ultimately uh, due to a, an only unlabeled cassette tape that was found on a basement floor. But um, this other unlabeled cassette tape, um, this woman said to the composer, oh, listen to this voice, this, I check this out. And he really, he loved it. And it was this recording that I had made with like a bunch of other people. And I was on every third track or something. And it turned out that whatever it was in my voice was exactly what he was hoping to find, but it was unlabeled and she didn't know what it was he heard the shape note stuff in cold mountain and he heard my voice popping out of that. So he, he Googled those things, you know, Balkan shape note, new England ballad singing, whatever. And he like <laughs> kept popping up and he said, wow, that's that guy who was on that cassette tape. And yeah, so that's how I got to Carnegie hall was, was that way. <laughs> You see